This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg and we're on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and online it's www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Rala Netulo, Wisani Matebula and Mosibodi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. As Zimbabwe gears for elections, there are still lingering questions on the whereabouts of activist Itai Zamara. Amnesty International decries continued eviction of people from a dense forest west of the Kenya's capital. In economics, shares in the biggest Asia-based car companies fall sharply after the U.S. announces it's considering import tariffs on vehicles. And in your sports, UEFA announces the venues for the 2019 and 2020 Champions League finals. But for now, here's the news with Jualan. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The IGAD-led revitalization of the South Sudan peace agreement that was held in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa has ended without any deal between the warring parties. The government of South Sudan and its opposition parties have failed to agree on how to share power and governance responsibilities. Koleta Wanyonyi reports. The high-level revitalization forum was created by the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, to assist the South Sudan warring parties to narrow their gaps and agree to a total ceasefire for the sake of their citizens who have suffered from internal conflict in the country that began in 2013. The second phase that began on 17th May in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, ended on 23rd without the two parties agreeing on power sharing and governance issues. As a result, the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, the mediator, presented them with a proposal of how they can solve their problems. The IGAD proposal suggests that there be one president and three vice presidents. Algeria has lambasted a rights group for leading what it termed a malicious campaign against it. This comes after NGOs accused a North African country of arresting sub-Saharan migrants and forcefully deporting them. Algerian rights groups, activists and civil society members launched an advocacy push in mid-May entitled We Are All Migrants. Campaigners accused the state of being behind a campaign of arbitrary arrests followed by mass and collective expulsions without due process. South Africa's government has called on the Israeli Defense Force to withdraw from the Gaza Strip in Palestine and to bring an end to the incursion into Palestinian territories. This follows the announcement last week that South Africa was recalling its ambassador to Israel following the shooting dead of 60 Palestinian protesters against the moving of the American embassy to Jerusalem. South Africa's communications minister Nomvula Mukonyane has told a media briefing in Parliament in the Western Cape province that other measures are being considered. Minister Sisulu will be briefing Parliament in the next sitting on other measures that South Africa must consider, but also on how we are going to do our bit in the United Nations and with the international community, not just on the side of solidarity, but also on the serious interventions that we believe have to be taken to bring peace and stability and realization of the two states in terms of Palestine and Israel. 
Amnesty International has criticized the continued eviction of more than 16,000 people from a dense forest west of the Kenyan capital Nairobi. The Swanga ethnic group has been living in the forest for more than 100 years. Amnesty International's researcher in Kenya, Naomi Barasa, shed light on the current situation in the forest inhabited by the Swanga people. She was speaking at an Amnesty International briefing in Nairobi. The situation in the forest is quite hostile and very violent. There's a lot of shooting, there's a lot of burning of houses. KFS has been burning houses a lot. KFS is the Kenya Forest Service that is responsible for conservation forests in this country. They've been forcing people out of that forest so violently through shooting, through beating and arrests and burning of houses. So it is very, very hostile for children. They purport that uh, they want people out of that forest so that they can be able to conserve, but in our research we've been able to demonstrate that it is not the case. And finally, North Korea has carried out a series of explosions that it says have demolished its main nuclear test site. A hand-picked group of foreign journalists were taken to the area to witness the destruction of the site. North Korea offered to put the site out of use as a gesture ahead of a planned summit between its leader, Kim Jong-un, and President Donald Trump next month. BBC's Laura Bicker has the details. International journalists who were invited to watch the dismantling of the Punguri nuclear test site reported seeing huge explosions in the mountains in the northeast of the country. They said that North Korean officials made sure the cameras were rolling before setting off a series of blasts to collapse the tunnels which had been used for all six of the state's nuclear tests. One reporter said an observation tower was also blown apart. No independent experts were allowed to witness the event. That will make it difficult to assess if the destruction is complete and irreversible. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. Zimbabwe is gearing up for fresh elections, the first since Robert Mugabe resigned in November last year. Alongside fixing the economy and creating jobs, another issue that is likely to be raised is that of the disappearance of Itai Zamara. Itai was a young activist who was tired of the way Zimbabwe was being run under Mugabe, and so he began a one-man protest movement in the Africa Unity Square Park in central Harare in 2014. In March of 2015, he was abducted. The BBC's Kim Chakanetsa reports from Zimbabwe. On the morning of the 9th of March 2015, 35-year-old Itai Zamara, a political activist, decided to go to his local barber shop. Shefra, his wife, remembers that day. He went out singing, then said, ah, my noku. I want to go to Africa in its space, I'm coming back. So he went out singing a gospel song. But he didn't come back to his wife and family and he never made it to Africa Unity Square, where he would stage his frequent protests. A plane cut with the, yeah, number one, number one, that's one. As Itai waited in the barber's chair to get his beard trimmed, two unknown men walked in. His barber, who asked not to be named, explains what happened. They looked at Itai and said, this is the cattle thief. Uh, that white car we had seen then parked by the door, Itai was put inside at the back. They told him we are going to go explain everything to the police. And then he was gone. Itai was gone, abducted in broad daylight, taken from the barber's chair. 
Three years on, and we still don't know where he is or what has happened to him. Africa Unity Square is right in the center of Zimbabwe's capital, Harare. It's full of trees, right now in bloom, with bursts of vivid orange and red. This is where Itai Zamara first came to the attention of the Robert Mugabe regime. He stood alone in sight of the MPs entering the parliament building over there on the edge of the square, holding a placard that read, Failed Mugabe must step down. Unemployment in Zimbabwe was high, and even those who had jobs struggled to make ends meet. Itai wanted change, and on the 17th of October 2014, he and two other protesters hand-delivered a petition to former President Robert Mugabe's offices, asking him to step down. Philosophy Nyabfumbi went with Itai. We took them by surprise, because they scanned us for any explosives, anything, even our letter caused a lot of scanning. After they have read the content of the letter, they came back and they said, it's treasonous. And was there ever a response? Yeah, the response was the beatings, the arrests. Despite his many arrests and beatings, Itai continued with his protests. It's time to take back the country, he says here. He was addressing a rally in Harare just two days before he was abducted. It's hard to know who took Itai and why, but his younger brother Patson says to him, it's very clear. Itai's abduction was the wake of ZANU-PF. Why would the ruling party, ZANU-PF, have abducted Itai? In 2014, the opposition was virtually silent. Meanwhile, the economic conditions were depreciating on a daily basis. So it is within that context that my brother started to speak out. Government officials actually stated that they feared what Itai was doing would culminate into an Arab Spring kind of a scenario. So the fear was that he would mobilise people to essentially overthrow the government? Yes. In the days and months following his abduction, the Zamara family and their lawyer say the police didn't investigate thoroughly enough. I tried to get a response from the Zimbabwean police, no luck. We did manage to speak to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sibusi Somoyo, and he says the days of abductions are over. We, as the new dispensation, are very careful to protect each and every Zimbabwean's life. We pride in the lives of all Zimbabweans. This dispensation has got no, in its narrative, uh, abductions or anything of that nature. Robert Mugabe is no longer in power, and now there's much talk of a new way of doing things in Zimbabwe under its new leader, Emerson Nangagwa. The state says it doesn't know what happened to Itai Zamara, but his disappearance leaves a stain on the country's reputation. And it also leaves Itai's family, like his wife Shefra and friends like Philosophy, in a state of cruel limbo. One day, God will do something. Who let us know what happened or we just release it wherever he is. They should just give him a decent burial. If they have killed him, they should give us his revenge. And that report was by the BBC's Kim Chakanitsa.
The Intergovernmental Authority for Development led revitalization of the South Sudan peace agreement that was held in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa has ended without any deal between the warring parties. The government of South Sudan and its opposition parties have failed to agree on how to share power and governance responsibilities. Coletta Wanyoni reports. The high-level revitalization forum was created by the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, to assist the South Sudan warring parties to narrow their gaps and agree to a total ceasefire for the sake of their citizens who have suffered from internal conflict in the country that began in 2013. The second phase that began on 17th May in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, ended on 23rd without the two parties agreeing on power sharing and governance issues. As a result, the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, the mediator, presented them with a proposal of how they can solve their problems. The IGAD proposal suggests that there be one president and three vice presidents, and that the transitional government of national unity takes 55% of government control, while the faction led by former vice president and rebel leader Riek Mashar takes 25% of the control of the government, and the rest be shared among other parties. Dr. Ismail Wise, the IGAD special envoy for South Sudan, explains the importance of this new move. I further encourage the South Sudanese parties and stakeholders to consider the IGAD bridging proposals which reflects a, cons- a considered effort to identify common ground between the different negotiating positions. Michael McQuay, the South Sudan Information Minister, explains their position on this. Well, the government position on Agad proposal, we are in agreement in some parts and we are in disagreement on some parts and we have presented our position in the areas where we are not in agreement with the document. Some of those areas are areas of... Uh, of removal of the first vice president and the vice president. These are areas like the, 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 the responsibility sharing. These are areas of disagreement and we have presented our position. Mabior Garang, the head of the information committee of the faction led by former Vice President Riek Mashar, says that their faction does not agree with this eager proposal because it gives much power to President Salva Kiir. Well, there's a, the problem with the proposal is, um, is one of... Uh, the, 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 the formula for negotiations. We have been saying, we have been repeating this over and over again. The, the formula for negotiations has it so that uh, President Salfakir and his foreign minister are members of the, of the, of the uh, uh, foreign ministers of uh, Council of Ministers of IGAD and the Assembly of Heads, heads of States and Government. And uh, Salfakir is a party to the war at the same time. So he's a referee and a player at the same time. So when uh, the Council of Ministers sits or when the, uh, the, the, pres- the Assembly of Heads of States and Government sits, uh, a lot of times when, when their communiques come out or their decisions come out, we detect a lot of the voice of uh, Juba in, uh, in this and we don't want to make it as a, as a blame on the other member states of IGAD. We understand that the, the, the nature of the diplomacy, but we see it as a challenge to the peace process. And so this makes... Um, uh, makes us look at the proposal as, as, as a proposal that's really uh, favorable to Juba. However, the special envoy of IGAD to South Sudan, Dr. Ismail Wais, says the warring parties have to learn to compromise in order to save the over 7 million people in South Sudan who have suffered the effects of this ongoing conflict. For now, the peace talks have ended after both parties presenting in writing their recommendations on this new IGAD proposal on power sharing. It is expected that the mediator will assess their recommendations and probably come up with another version of the power deal proposal at a later date to be announced. 
Colette Wanjohi, Channel Africa Radio, in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Friday the 25th of May is a special day for our continent. It is Africa Day. Africans commemorate the founding of the Organization of African Unity, now known as the African Union, on the 25th May 1963. It aims to celebrate African unity. Channel Africa will be part of the celebrations. Join us as we broadcast live from the 9th Tabombeki Africa Day Lecture. So tune into Channel Africa, Friday the 25th of May from 19 hours to 21 hours Central African time on the frequency 3345 kHz on the 36 meter band when we'll bring you Ms. Pumozile Mulambongnuka, Under Secretary General and Executive Director of UN Women, the title of her lecture being Gender Equality and Women Development for Africa's Renewal. The time and frequency again, 19 hours to 21 hours Central African time on the frequency 3345 kHz on the 36-meter band. Channel Africa, Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The Africa Center is joining activists around the continent with the red card campaign to stop one of the biggest threats to, continent, to the continent's democracies as the continent marks Africa Day. The non-profit organization based in Cape Town was established in 2005 as an international center for creativity, artistic excellence and intellectual engagement. Africa Day is an annual celebration on the 25th of May that marks the formation of the Organization of Africa Unity in Ethiopia in 1963. The OAU evolved into the African Union on the 25th of May in 2001. The day is about celebrating Africa's independence, freedom, dignity and unity of all its citizens. To talk to us more about this, we're joined on the line by a member of the Board of Directors at the Centre. His name is Derek Carlson. Derek, Derek, thank you very much for joining us. Hi. Hi. Hi, good day. Now, Derek, tell us about this red card campaign. Why use the celebration of African unity to raise this issue? Okay. First of all, let me just say that um, I'm speaking on behalf of the Africa Center as a board member as our uh, executive director is traveling abo- abroad currently. Um, well, then there's a big issue in Africa about the term limits of presidents uh, and those who have overstayed their welcome, um, those who have extended their terms, um, uh, those who have changed the constitution to achieve that. Mm-hmm etc 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 and we would like to add our voice as a continental citizen to bring uh, an awareness around this issue i mean some of the the facts are quite starting if you look at it if you look at um, some of the presidents who have removed term lim- limits i'm not mm. saying they did all on their own but they've done it with their political power backers or parties yes i mean in togo there's etienne Iadema. You know, president for 35 years, mm-hmm. uh, Uganda, Museveni, 32 years, Chad, there was Idris Darby, he mm-hmm. was for 28 years, Cameroon, he was BI, um, he was there for 36 years, and, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we're quite concerned about the growing t- trend that could kind of end up in a situation where we go back to one man, one rule, mm-hmm. and authoritarian authoritarianism, etc. Um, they are good. I mean, it's not all bad. I mean, 
Ellen, the presidents Ellen Joseph Sirleaf, uh, President Ian Kikama, mm-hmm. and Jacinda Mozambique, they all did the two or three terms. Um, but I mean, there's just a sprinkling of examples I've given you, there are many more. Of course. Now, Jake, um, please tell us. To summarize in total, just to summarize in total, if you don't yes. mind, one in four presidents having power past the expiry dates. Wow. So, one in four. That yeah. means 25% of all the presidents in Africa. Correct. Now, Derek, please Correct. tell us how this uh, red card campaign is going to work. So, we would like to create awareness around Africa Day, and uh, we are distributing to all our networks and our databases uh, the red card campaign. We thought it was quite an easy campaign to put together digitally, but also if people want to have any collective get-togethers or gatherings publicly, mm-hmm. uh, one could easily make a red card, you know, use it as a symbol, kind of, we all know what we use it in sports and so on. Yes. Uh, that's the idea. It's, quite a, it's a very simple intention. It's just to go create awareness around the postponing of term limits, the changing of the constitution and so on for presidents, for presidential power. Um, and especially in the context of where we're going and growing as a continent, mm. Um, and how democracies either entrench, embed real um, practices which benefit ordinary citizens like ourselves, or whether it's concentrated in power elites uh, that don't benefit everybody or as many people as possible. So it's a civil society um, awareness campaign. All right. Now, Derek, you've mentioned all of these uh, very long terms, 34 years, 35 years, 36 years, and... One would assume that uh, these presidents are well into their, their later years. How important is it for you know the continent to give over the reins, especially to young people on the continent? Yeah, that's a good point you make there, actually. Uh, you know, we at Africa Center, we have various pan-continental projects that we run, and it's mainly aimed at young um, creatives, mm-hmm. but, the but it's a mix of young and established. Um, obviously, we need to bring in the emerging. Um, cultural workers, activists, and so on. Um, so, for example, we have a Wiki Africa project where we actually train academics, emerging academics, young scholars, to actually write the story of Africa on Wikipedia. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, for example. Um, and then we also have Badalisha Poetry Platform, which is Africa's largest online platform for poets. Yeah. So we give a voice for emerging and established poets online and we distribute accordingly on and on and on. Mm. Um, so we're very much in the space of the emerging and the established and trying to create voices and spaces for new voices so that we can actually contribute to new knowledge and a new way of constructing society. So that's why it's quite important. And as I say, if you look at how skewed that the age demographic in Africa is towards the youth, yeah, uh, it's quite clearly... It's quite clear that it's important that we need a younger voice in Africa. That's absolutely lovely. Now, it seems as though more and more leaders seem to be extending their terms of office by changing the constitution. How effective do you think the red card campaign is going to be? Um, as I said, it's an awareness campaign. It's not a kind of a, a political campaign mm-hmm. in any sense. So it's just drawing at the awareness or drawing attention to the fact that in case you haven't read or heard about uh, this growing trend, you know, these are the facts. Yes. Uh, and, and, and we hopefully start a, a debate or a discussion, just a broad public discussion around 
this topic on Africa Day itself. But do, do you think? Uh, do I you, don't think. Yeah. Do you think that yeah. uh, the people, the citizens, you know, of the continent know that there are these these laws that uh, are being changed, or these laws that you know they can actually stand up for to make sure that the, the people in power, you know, um, pass over the the, the reins. Yeah, I think if you go, you know, if you go country by country, mm-hmm. the citizens are, are well aware of uh, what their rights are, um, but there are different forms of coercive power and control. Yes, uh, via either military or police, economic, financial, uh, etc., 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 that doesn't allow or do not allow people to actually um, create a, a solid base for change. Mm. Um, and if you want to, like, say, if I'm a Cameroonian uh, and I'm focusing on my country, I might not be aware of all what's happening in the rest of the uh, countries on the continent. So it's just to create a broad and continental awareness about it. As I say, we're not a political organization. Yeah. You know, we are a cultural, um, civil, uh, civil society, NGO organization, and we get involved in programs that change the way people do will go about the normal way of life, cultural life, you know. Now, Derek, and if we someone... We would add our voice. Now, Derek, if someone wants no. to take part in, uh, you know, this campaign, just give us those detail again, details again, please. The details are that you need to... Um, we, we have various partners and colleagues, civil society organizations and individuals throughout Africa that's actually um, spreading the message of either the databases... Um, uh, via digital, mm-hmm. uh, and that's how we're seeding the campaign. So basically, to various networks okay. um, throughout Africa, um, and, and that's where that's how we're spreading the word at the moment. Oh. Um, we have created a link which is in the email. There's an email that's gone out to all our networks and our partners. Mm-hmm. We're distribu- distributing it, and then at the bottom of that email, there's a link to a Google Drive where we've um, placed all the graphics for the red card mm-hmm. campaign. So you'll find um, graphics that are made up to size to fit Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so on. Yes. So the matter, it's, it's just simply a matter of copy, pasting, and click and send. Awesome. Now, Derek, thank you very much for joining us, and we wish you all the best with this campaign. I know that it's something Thanks. that Africa needs very desperately. Thank you very much. All right, that was Derek Carl. Sure, man. That was Derek Carlson, member of the board of directors at the Africa Center. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hour Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. The preacher at the royal wedding, the American Bishop Michael Curry, is adjusting to newfound fame in his home country. But, as well as touring the TV studios, the head of the U.S. 
Episcopal Church is joining a political protest by religious leaders outside the White House. They say there's a dangerous crisis of moral and political leadership at the highest level of government. It's being seen as a movement of the religious left to counter America's religious right. The BBC's religion director Martin Bashir met with Bishop Michael Curry in New York and asked him first how he was adjusting to becoming the breakout star of the royal wedding. Well, I don't know if I'm a breakout star or not, but I really do hope that the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ at that wedding has been some good news for those who heard it. I really do. And you know, the truth is, if you look at what, what happened there, um, that you, it was a wonderful day for all of us. Uh, we actually got to see two people who are deeply in love with each other. And their love, it was obvious. If you looked at their faces, looked at how they looked at each other, it was real. And their love for each other began to reshape the world around them. I mean, notice what happened. That service was, it, it was all of us. It was um, people from different nationalities, different races, different ethnicities, um, different worlds. Those two people, their love brought a variety of worlds together. You were quoting Dr. Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. perhaps the greatest civil rights leader of the 20th century, mm -hmm. at the very heart of the British establishment and its historical associations with things like colonialism and slavery. Were you trying to make a point? I was trying to make a point to all of us, myself included, to the whole world, that you know, we all have history, we all have a past, but our job, as St. Paul says, is to press on toward the mark of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And our task now is to figure out how do we love each other in such a way that we can actually change the world around us. You gave an interview to a journal last year in which you said that at moments of deep political division, the Christian gospel can be a uniting force. As you look at the United States, with some of the rhetoric of the current president, Donald Trump, particularly in relation to immigrants and so on, do you feel this is an opportunity for the Christian faith? You know, I, I, I really do. I've got to relate to you or anybody else as a beloved child of God. If we are Christian, that's how we relate to everybody. Now, we may have our disagreements and our debates. That's fine. That's okay. But, but as the old folk used to say, we disagree without being disagreeable. What's your impression of some of the rhetoric that has come out of the White House in relation to immigrants and so on? You know what? I take the positive. I take the high road. I believe, and I think this is where people of faith actually can be of help, that we must take the high road. We always take the high road. That we're going to love and do what's kind and what's compassionate and what's just. We're going to advocate for the kindness, the justice, the goodness. Um, and we're going to stand there and we're going to invite others to join us there. You know that within the Anglican Communion, the Episcopal Church of America now embraces and endorses same-sex marriage. And you'll know that that is still unusual in the global communion. How do you respond to those who say that you have walked away from Scripture? I'm walking right into Scripture. Jesus says you are to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's at the heart of Scripture. 
And what that means is we may have our differences about human sexuality, we may have our differences about the appropriate uses of violence, we may have our differences um, about various medical issues. That I mean, there are a lot of things that we disagree about. We got a lot of things we're dis... But love, to love God and to love each other, if we do that, we can navigate our differences. And now it's time for your news headlines. Good afternoon, I'm Jolani Tulor making headlines. The IGAD-led revitalization of the South Sudan peace agreement that was held in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa has ended without any deal between the warring parties. Amnesty International has criticized the continued eviction of more than 16,000 people from a dense forest west of the Kenyan capital Nairobi. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump has called off his planned summit next month with the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulor. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congo. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president. Nelson Kholisasa Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Amnesty International, the London-based human rights organization, has decried continued eviction of more than 16,000 people from a dense forest west of the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. The people belonging to the Sangwe ethnic group have been living in their ancestral homes in the forest for more than 100 years. James Shimanyula attended a briefing session by Amnesty International earlier today in Nairobi. Here is his report. The London-based Amnesty International says the eviction of the Sangwere people from the dense forest is illegal. It says the eviction is a flagrant violation of Kenyan and international laws. Naomi Barasa, Amnesty International's researcher in Kenya, sheds light on the current situation in the forest inhabited by more than 16,000 Sangweri people. The situation in the forest is quite hostile and very violent. There's a lot of shooting, there's a lot of burning of houses. KFS has been burning houses a lot. KFS is the Kenya Forest Service that is responsible for conservation forests in this country. They've been forcing people out of that forest so violently through shooting, through beating and arrests and burning of houses, so it is very, very hostile for children. 
they purport that uh, they want people out of the, that forest so that they can be able to conserve. But in our research, we've been able to demonstrate that it is not the case. That was Naomi Barasa, Amnesty International's researcher in Kenya. Soon after presenting her report to journalists, Gordon Odhiambo, a local journalist, claimed that the report did not contain important facts on what is taking place in the forest. Join me as I narrate proceedings in the briefing room which was also equipped with a video link to London where another Amnesty International researcher Chris Chapman answered the questions posed by the journalists. As the presentation continued, a journalist who has visited the forest says the picture painted by Amnesty International is below what he saw there. Let's hear him. But there is something I want to question uh, Amnesty International about. You say in your report, in your presentation, what you are told. One, you are told by the locals, you are told that the non-locals were awarded or were compensated. But what did you find out? Yes, you are told. What did you find out? Did you ask the right questions? What this what journalist is asking Amnesty International London office is whether they dug deeper to unearth the plight of the Sangweri people. Perhaps we have to get a comment from Chris Chapman, a researcher for Amnesty International in London. We tried to engage with the senator, uh, Senator Merkerman, who is who is a Sengwer himself. Unfortunately, Senator Merkerman did not engage with us at all, and the community is quite unhappy with him in terms of his defence of, of the community. He doesn't engage with them, he doesn't return their phone calls, he hasn't returned Amnesty International's phone calls or requests for a meeting. That was Chris Chapman, Amnesty International researcher at the organization's headquarters in London. Shortly after Chris Chapman answered a local journalist, it was now my turn to put some questions to him. I wanted to know if the international community is putting pressure on the Kenyan government to stop the illegal eviction of the Sangweri people. The United Nations has a number of mechanisms which it is using. There are the special rapporteurs who are independent human rights experts. Three of these rapporteurs wrote to the Kenyan government in January after the many forced evictions in January and they said that they wanted the government to consult with the Sengwer on their situation. They demanded that the evictions stop and they wanted the government to recognize that the Sengwer should be allowed to remain in the forest and conserve the forest. How do you characterize the Sengwer case in Kenya compared to other African countries where Amnesty International has exercised its power to ensure that people's human rights are actually recognized and respected. Any other African country where people live in forests and they're being subjected to inhuman kind of treatment by having their houses burnt as a one of the officials here presenting said earlier and even evicted forcefully, taking into consideration 
that that is their ancestral home. Any other African country, just draw a kind of inference. We don't like to compare human rights situations to say one is worse than the other, but, and also I would say this piece of research is a bit of a first for amnesty. In Africa, we, we've not investigated the situation of indigenous peoples in Africa very extensively. We hope that this piece of research is going to be a start. This situation is not new at all in Africa, and there are many other countries which are suffering very similar problems. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, there are similar problems also related to conservation projects. There are national parks in DRC which are protected by government as protected areas and the indigenous peoples who live there and their role in conservation has not been recognized they're treated as threat to the environment they're treated as poachers they're arrested if they're found in those in those parks they're mistreated and tortured uh, so it's it's definitely not unique that was amnesty international researcher chris chapman speaking to me from london by video link Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADAG, says it's making use of its online resources, such as this week's Facebook Friday online chat, to raise awareness and create conversations to help fight the stigma against bipolar disorder. This comes as countries prepare to celebrate World Bipolar Day this coming Saturday, which is designed to create awareness of the condition and rally support for those living with it. Tabo Lepoto is a senior counsellor at SADAG. People, you know, think that bipolar is just someone who is angry and happy all at the same time, of which in some cases it is true, in some cases it's not. But one of the bestest ways to characterize bipolar is that you are trapped between two extremities. It's like you are extremely happy, which is manic episode, or you are extremely depressed, so when you're experiencing your low. So bipolar is just the disorder that is just characterized by two extreme poles. Either you are elated, like I said, in your manic, or you're either mm. very, very sad or very down. Now, let's talk about uh, the symptoms. You know, we hear the manic and the depressive states, but for somebody, you know, who might be suspecting that someone close to them may have the disorder or any other disorder, you know, what are the symptoms to look for? So usually someone who has bipolar or people that experienced bipolar would usually have, you know, intense emotions. They sometimes experience changes in sleep patterns and, you know, activity levels, you know. They sometimes exhibit unusual behavior. Their behavior is always related to mood. So you have a mood episode where someone feels either very, very high, which is when they're in their manic, where they're feeling very high, is like you have, you're so happy, you have so much energy, you know, you feel like doing all the things that you wouldn't normally do. And whereas when you're experiencing your lows now, you feel very, very sad, you feel very down, you're empty, you have little hope, you have mm. little energy. So one follows the other. So if someone is experiencing their manic episode, it could last for about two to three weeks, you know, and when they come back from that manic episode, they feel very, very down. And that's when, in a lot of cases, some of them try to commit suicide. It's often said that when people are showing some of the very strong signs that you've already um, highlighted, you know, people will say, Ugh, those are white people disorders. These are not something that black people experience, you know. On the continent and in South Africa specifically, 
Does bipolar disorder choose people? Bipolar, like any other mental illness, doesn't choose color, you know, it doesn't choose race, it doesn't choose age. So you can be 18 and be characterized or have bipolar. You can be 60 and, you know, then have bipolar. There are a lot of, you know, things that happen during our lifetime that can actually lead someone to being bipolar. Or there are a lot of causes in other cases that can lead someone to be bipolar. So no, it's not about being black or it's not about being white. It's us actually admitting that there are certain things that happen in our lives and we need to take responsibility for those things and we need to learn as much as we can. And in terms of a stigma, how do we then begin in our own spaces to really squash the stigma? Why is there so much stigma around it? I mean, we have days like the World Bipolar Day, which we are observing on Saturday. But what is it that we can do more in terms of really squashing all the stigma that's surrounded around a bipolar and just mental illness in general? I remember when, you know, there was the HIV pandemic that happened like, you know, probably I think 15 years ago. And there were programs that started. People started talking about it so that they can remove the stigma. Although it's still there, but it's minimal, you know. Therefore, it means that for us to actually be able to remove the stigma, we need to talk about it. We need to go out there and express it. I mean, if we have programs such as, you know, Bipolar Awareness Day, you know, that will be happening this Saturday, it's good. Let's post about it. I mean, we are a very social generation. Let's talk about it on social media. Let's tweet about it. Let's retweet about it. The more information that we know or we get about mental disorders, the better equipped we are to actually mm. even identify friends that might be suffering from any of these illnesses. And just finally, on the disorder itself, when managed properly, um, can treatment yield positive results for those who are living with the disorder? The bestest way to actually just summarize this whole treatment thing, because in a lot of cases, people who have bipolar disorder think that if you take medication, then you'll be okay. It doesn't work like that, even when it comes to depression. Actually, all mental disorders need you to use a holistic view when it comes to treating them. It means you need to have your psychiatrist, you need to have your psychologist, you need to have a support system within your area, you know, support groups, probably having support from family, meaning that also if as a family we have someone who has bipolar, we then need to take responsibility and learn more about what that disorder is so that we can be able to help them, understand them. And I mean, if we are able to understand the people that are living with bipolar, we are better equipped on how to handle and even help them further. So it is a holistic approach. And not only it being a holistic approach, even the person who is bipolar, you need to go out there, get more information mm. as to how you can, you know, help better equip yourself with resources like going to the gym. Like you need to get more information about it. And that was Tabo Lepoto, a senior counselor at the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, talking to Zekonamiso. But right now it's time for your economics news with Wasani Matebula.
Thanks, uh, Samora, and good evening. South African Reserve Bank has uh, kept rates unchanged at 6.5%, but has cited upward pressure on the inflation, especially from value-added tax that increases. Economists expect rates to remain on hold for longer as inflation ticks upwards. In the first set of data that reflects VAT increase announced last year, Statistics South Africa this week reported that inflation had edged up to 4.5% in April from 3.8% in March. All prices have also increased and the rent has weakened against a basket of currencies which the Reserve Bank says is a cause for concern. Economists say the bank will play it safe and keep rates on hold for the rest of 2018. Amina Akram reports. There is good news for hard-pressed consumers as the Reserve Bank kept rates on hold. Reserve Bank Governor Lesecha Khanyaho says the rate cutting cycle is over and cited major risks to inflation outlook, including VAT increases and electricity tariffs that is expected to come into effect next year. The governor, however, said he was pleased that the economy is showing signs of recovery despite the high unemployment rate. Amina Akram, SABC News, Pretoria. Meanwhile, uh, the bank has cited uh, VAT and electricity tariffs hikes as the biggest risk to the inflation outlook in the coming months. Although the Reserve Bank left the rates unchanged, it says inflation is ticking up. It has also said external factors such as higher oil prices could push up inflation in the coming months. Reserve Bank Governor Lesetja Khanyak. Greater clarity with regard to electricity tariffs is expected in June when NERSA is scheduled to respond to ESCOM's application for an increase in the order of 30%. Our current assumptions are for a for an 8% increase from mid-2019. The possibility of an increase in excess of these assumptions pose an upside risk to our inflation forecast. The MPC attempts to look through the first round effects of such shocks and to react to second round effects. The Civil Aviation Authority says the decision to ground SA Express was because the airline could not ensure safety obligations are met at all times. The regulatory body has suspended the air operator certificate as well as the certificates of airworthiness of 9 of 21 SA Express aircrafts. The Civil Aviation Authority of South Africa says the decision comes after an audit which uh, uh, uncovered serious cases of non-compliance that pose serious safety risks. CAA spokesperson Pindi Wegwebu. The evidence that we uncovered from the operator could not give us a, a level of comfort that the safety management system uh, is credible. And uh, when an operator gets an air services license from the licensing council, they have to tell the Department of Transport who are the post holders going to be, who's the accountable manager, who's responsible for the aircraft. We found that there has been changes, for instance, in the position of the CEO four times in a period of eight months. Now, when we go and we follow up on, on findings that we uncovered in our previous audit, we want satisfaction um, from the accountable manager that the findings are being closed and that they are being followed up. And we could not get this consistently when we went back and forth to the airline. Shares in the biggest Asia-based car companies, including Nissan, Toyota and Hyundai, have fallen sharply after the U.S. announced that it's considering import tariffs on vehicles. The U.S. Department says uh, the request for President Donald Trump has opened an investigation into whether the imports of foreign cars, trucks and automotive parts represent a threat to the national security. The BBC's Karishma Vasani has more. 
Japan says the tariffs under consideration by the U.S. would disrupt the global market and go against the rules of the World Trade Organization. That may not, however, be enough to change President Donald Trump's mind. He had promised voters on the campaign trail that he was going to make America great again. Part of those promises included reviving domestic industries like steel, aluminium and the auto sector. That's presumably the rationale behind the decision to consider raising import tariffs on foreign vehicles and auto parts by possibly as much as 25%. Financial indicators, the dollar at 9.8 Botswana Pula, 10.2 Zambian Kwacha, commodities gold at $1,294, platinum at $902 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $79.54 per barrel. And that's your economics news. And now it's time for your sports with Mosiburi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with cricket news, former Titans and New Zealand wicketkeeper Kruger funder Vague says even though the Proteus batsman A.B. de Villiers' retirement from international cricket is a big loss for the country, it also is an opportunity to be thankful that uh, there was such a player within South African cricket. Now, Van Vague played uh, with him at the Titans and against him in international cricket when Van Vague was playing for the Black Caps. Praised uh, de Villiers' personality, saying that his humility outweighs the brilliant cricketer he is yeah it's uh, it's a loss but it's also I almost want to say almost more thankful for that there was A.B. de Villiers for South African cricket you know he, he's he been an unbelievable performer and, and I think the, the measure of the man the person who he was um, outweighs almost the cricketer that he was you know um, so a wonderful wonderful career an example to to a lot of people about humility um, hard work Team first, always. It was never about AB. It was always about the team. Doesn't matter what team he played for. And and you know, a lot of cricketers will always say that um, they don't follow stats. But AB definitely didn't follow stats. He was the only stat he was ever interested in was how many games can he win for his team. And and I think that is something that is rare and and makes him even more special. Well, Van Vega has warned South African cricket not to try and replace De Villiers, but instead uh, make sure that they are able to get the best out of the players like Aidan Mokram as well as Temba Bavuma so that they can make a name for themselves and not live in someone else's shadow. So I think a lot of time we probably make a mistake by trying to label someone as, as the next Makaya or the next AB, you know, and... I think what we've just got to allow in our system is just allow people to grow within whom they are comfortable with being themselves. So Aiden will be different to AB, but to get the best Aiden, to get the best Temba, for them to be the best who they are. You know, um, to replace people is difficult. Different people bring different things as personality and skill and that sort of thing. So just to allow people to grow within themselves as people and as players as well. But to replace AB will be tough. But But you know what? In, in life, the show goes on, and, and that's what AB wants as well. So um, I'm, I'm sure that team will be fine. 
On to football news, Istanbul's Atoka Olympic Stadium will host the 2020 Champions League final. UEFA President Alexander Seferin announced after an executive committee meeting today. Now the 76,000 capacity stadium hosted the thrilling 2005 showpiece where Liverpool came back from 3-0 down at halftime to draw 3-all with AC Milan and win on a penalty shootout. Now the venue beat competition from Lisbon's Estadio da Luz where Real Madrid defeated Atletico Madrid for one after extra time back in the 2014 final. Now, the 2020 Women's Championship um, Champions League final will be held at Austria's Arena in Vienna. This year's a final between Olympic Lenos as well as FVL Wolfsburg that takes place um, later this evening will take place in Kiev two days before the men's edition taking place in the same city. However, as from next year, the two competition, um, the two competition finals will take place in separate countries. The 2019 edition will be held at the Grumapa Arena in Budapest, while the men's Champions League final will be held at the Wanda Metropolitana Stadium in Madrid, Spain. And finally, the African continent is suffering from bad leadership across the board. These were the words of Boxing South Africa Chairperson Dr. Peter Nkhatane at the inaugural South African Boxing Convention at a Birchwood Hotel earlier today. Now, the convention is part of the African Union Sports Council Region 5 Awards Program. Now, the awards will take place at the same venue on Saturday evening. The main aim of this conversation is to see all boxing professional bodies aligning their programs. Nkhatane says that it is important that African leaders should improve their service to their athletes. In one business writer, a business person in Africa, he said, he was from Tanzania, he said, Africa is not poor. Africa is not poor. We have the resources. We have the boxers of good quality. But we have one problem, bad leaders. We have bad leaders as Africans. Our mandate as leaders must be to facilitate and make a smoother playing field for our boxers. That's our mandate, not to, have to get self-glory and uh, we end up in boardroom squabbles that spills over outside and there's only one entity that suffers, it's our athlete. Look at any other sport, sporting code. Once the boardroom battles are uncontrollable, there is no way that we will have a situation where our athletes can excel because mentally we're already destroying them. And this is our sports news at the sound back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest today. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Luanda Maome, technical, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus 27-76300-3327. That's plus 27-76300-3327. You can also head on over to Twitter and tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Criminal by DJ Mshecha and Lady Zamar.